well, how do you, how do you deal with making mistakes? Uh, and particularly, how do you deal with being corrected? Right? That's a hard one, isn't it? Uh, and uh, it's a complicated issue because it, it depends on so many different factors, doesn't it? It depends, I think, quite a lot on who the person is that's correcting you. It is much easier to take correction from someone who, first of all, who you look up to, someone perhaps older or wiser or more knowledgeable. Uh, and secondly, it's easier to be co corrected by someone that you trust actually has your best at heart. You know, they're not trying to make you look small or foolish, um, and they're not trying to make themselves look big. You're not, you're not sort of suspecting that. No, they're actually, they've got your best at heart. They care about you. It can be really hard to take correction from someone that you don't respect, right? Who you think's got no right to judge you. Who do they think they are talking to you like that? Or who you don't believe actually has your best interests at heart. You think, oh, yeah, they just want to pull me down so they can lift themselves up. Now, that may or may not be true. That's just how you're reading it, isn't it, when people correct you. But it, it can still make, leave you feeling sore, can't it, when you feel you've been unjustly corrected about something or, or just been made to feel a bit foolish. It can bruise our egos. It wounds our pride when that happens. And if it's not addressed, then it starts to create resentment inside us. And if resentment is not addressed, is not dealt with in our hearts, it boils, doesn't it? It festers. Like we, we, had a, we had a bin in Tanzania in our kitchen. This is a country where the temperature just never drops below incubation temperature. Yeah? And in our kitchen, this bin, it didn't matter, it, 24 hours, didn't matter what was in the bin, the festering had taken in. You did not want to open that bin there would be this eruption of evil that would come out. That's like what we're like. If we don't resolve these things, deal with these things. And so I guess the prouder that we are, the less likely we are to be able to take correction. It sort of necessarily follows, doesn't it? And some of us will be able then to relate to these things more easily than others, won't we? If you've got really low self-esteem, you know, if you think that you're worthless, then being corrected, well, you kind of expect it, you know. But of course, that's not a good thing either, is it? That's not how to address, that's not how to address it. But most of us then, I guess, know something of the feeling of resentment that comes from people pointing out our mistakes and our failures. We don't like people that do that. And it's really important as Christians, we learn to take these things to God before resentment sets in. Listen to what Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4. He says to them, get rid of all bitterness, all rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So important, isn't it? Because the, the consequences of letting bitterness set in can be catastrophic. I was reading uh, just recently uh, about a mass shooting that happened in Santa Barbara. In There's been several, by the way. Uh, if you put mass shooting in Santa Barbara, it's got all the years sort of listed. 2014, 
a chap called Elliot Rogers, 22 years old. He goes on an, on an uncontrolled killing spree. He killed six people. Three of them, he just stabbed them in his apartment in a rage. And then he went out and shot five ladies. And he injured another 14 others by shooting them or stabbing them or ramming them with his vehicle. I mean, imagine then he took his own life. And the reason I mention this is because it's really interesting. He, he, wrote, he, put up a, he wrote a document and sent it to friends and put a, a video up and stuff like that. Uh, and it, it became known as his manifesto. And it was analyzed. Here's an analysis by a PhD in ethics. He says this. The murderer resented those who excluded and rejected him. He wanted to prove his superiority over those who failed to respect him. He equated violence and cruelty with godlike power. He felt he was giving his enemies what they deserved. It could be Genesis 4, couldn't it? This story that we encounter, the first story after the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3, concerns exactly this issue, the issue of resentment and anger, sin. In chapter 3, we saw humanity, just to get the picture here, humanity attacked from the outside, didn't we? Genesis 3, the attack comes from from without. They're tempted by the serpent. In chapter 4, though, You don't expect this, but the enemy comes from inside. It's an inside job. Sin has entered the world. This is the fruit. It looked like very little had happened. They'd just been kicked out of their home. But actually, something fundamental has happened. We're now going to see the results. The disease that's entered humanity into the human heart is now going to break out on on the surface, on the skin. So follow along with me as we see in verses 1 to 16 here of chapter 4. Sacrifice, sin, and sentence. That's where we're going. So first of all, sacrifice. Now this chapter opens with a note of optimism and hope. It's it's wonderful, actually. And so you have to remember the backdrop here that we, the readers, have just read the most tragic story in the Bible. The story of paradise lost. Adam and Eve had it all. They were in a place where they wanted for nothing. It would be hard not to be content in the Garden of Eden. They had designer-made companionship. The kind of relationship with God that's described as walking with God in the cool of the day. I mean, how nice does that sound? To be friends with your maker. But they sinned. They doubted the goodness of God, listened to a serpent, a creature, rather than the creator, and made a willful decision to disobey God so that they could obtain what their hearts desired. But it was poisonous fruit. All they received was immediately a sense of shame and guilt. The venom has entered, it is now coursing through their veins, the venom of sin. And they were banished, yet there was a glimmer of hope. Do you remember? A promise that one day Eve would produce an offspring who would crush the serpent's head. At the very least, it means revenge, doesn't it? It means to be avenged. Yeah, the one that did this to us, he will get his head crushed. And so opens chapter 4 with that hope. 
Adam clinging to the hope, calling his wife the mother of all living. You know, death has entered the world, but she's life. Have a look at verse 1 with me. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. It's a birth. And it's wonderful. Births are full of hope and joy. I can't see the Claysons. But I hope that the joy is now welling up in their hearts with excitement. Eve, the mother of all living, has brought forth life. And she names him Cain. Um, we could spend hours talking about what the name Cain means. Nobody really, really knows, I don't think. Surely Eve, though, would be thinking as this little, this little boy comes into the world, is, is this the one that God promised? You know, is, this, is this the start of God's promise coming true? The serpent crusher? We don't know. But here he is. It's positive, isn't it? And, and probably only a short time later, Cain is followed by his younger brother, Abel. Double joy. Two boys. Fantastic. Great to have two boys to start with. And as they grow up, uh, it seems that Cain follows the profession of his father. Wonderful. He becomes a farmer. And a Abel goes into animal husbandry. He becomes a shepherd. Those seem to be the first two professions in human history. Farming and looking after the flocks. Honorable work. So you've got growing food and keeping sheep. Now they can make clothing. And they can have Milk-based drinks. They can even put cheese with their veggie burgers. Yeah? Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and on his offering... He did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now, this story raises all kinds of questions, but one in particular, doesn't it? Mostly, we want to know, why was Cain's offering not acceptable? Why was Abel's offering acceptable? Why is this? I mean, it appears so unfair, doesn't it? Both of these lads have brought offerings that were the fruit of their labor. Yeah, they'd worked to, to bring these things. And arguably, no disrespect to shepherds, but Cain would have put in more sweat and blood and tears into what he brought than Abel did. I mean, he's got to dig it and lift and carry and do all of this stuff. I mean, his, his profession is described as being by the sweat of your brow you bring forth food. I'm not suggesting shepherds just sit around and... But you get the point. Some suggest it's got to do, then, with the nature of the sacrifice. That only actually offering up a life, a blood offering, would have been acceptable to God. We know there's a principle later on in the Bible, don't we? That blood is needed to atone for sin. But there's no real evidence, actually, in the text that that's what's going on here. In fact, it looks more like what's being offered here is a thanksgiving offering. It's, uh, it's a tribute, should we say, rather than a sacrifice for sins. I mean, have a look in verse 3. 
you've got this phrase, in the course of time. You know, we've just been told we've got a farmer and we've got someone who's looking after animals. And then in the course of time, they, they're bringing something. It's sort of a harvesty kind of context here, isn't it? God's provided this, this fruit and now we're bringing a thank you. The first fruits of the crops. So it doesn't seem to have anything really to do with the value of the offering, the cost to the individual, or the work that went into it, nor the category of what has been offered. We know later on that actually it's very, very fitting to bring uh, grains and stuff. We were listening to Tiago's series in Leviticus. Very fitting to bring offerings like that as a thank you to God. So what's the problem here? What's Cain got wrong? Well, we've got to look at the details. Have a look. Verse 3. Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil. That's all we're really told about what he did. It kind of sounds like he's just grabbed what's convenient. I don't know. It kind of sounds that way. For Cain, it seems the offering then is, well, it's something that needs doing. It's a box to tick to bring the offering. Why do I say that? Because look at the contrast of verse 4 of Abel. Abel. Well, we're told he brought fat portions. We know, don't we, from Leviticus, fat portions. That's the best stuff. That's the stuff you want to keep, isn't it? It's the good stuff, the fat portions, the firstborn. I mean, it's the best. It's the absolute Rolls Royce of a, of a sacrifice, isn't it, here? Fat portions, firstborn. They are trigger words, aren't they, for best available. Best available. Which offering communicates a true sense of thankfulness. The New Testament sheds extra light on what's going on here. Uh, Look at what Hebrews chapter 11 says. I mean, this is the answer, actually. Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he's dead. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Do you see what's going on here? The author of Hebrews isn't worried about this. (laughs) He's got the answer. What was different about Abel's offering? Faith. That was what was different. It wasn't about how much work he put into it. It's about faith. Abel's whole approach to God was different here. The offering here is not given out of a sense of duty or obligation, but simply out of a heart that trusts God. That's the word for faith, isn't it? Trust. It's trusting God. It's a trusting sacrifice. He's not worried about the cost, you see. He brought his best out of faith that, well, God rewards those who earnestly seek him. God is no man's debtor. Now, don't misunderstand that. I don't think Abel is generous and big-hearted in his offering because he thinks that somehow that is going to obligate God to bless him in return. No, he's, he's just generous because he believes that God's nature is generous. He's willing to simply trust God and give his best to him. God is worthy of everything. That's his heart, isn't it? I'll give him my best from a grateful heart, because that's the kind of God I'm worshipping. It's all about, you see, what's going on in their hearts. What about Cain? What's going on in Cain's heart then? Well, his response 
shows that to us, doesn't it? Have a look, verse 5. Cain was angry. That's what's going on there. His face was downcast. When God comes to correct him and to warn him, he doesn't take it well. Look at how the author continues. Verse 6, and the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Cain's got a choice. Do you see that in these verses? He can accept the correction. He can listen to what God says. He can trust God's word, and he can do what is right. It's always the the option before us, isn't it? He can make a course correction, and everything will be good, says God. But that will mean eating humble pie. It'll mean admitting that his way was wrong, and that God is right. Or... He can choose to stay on the path that he's taken and not do what is right. He can refuse to listen to God's rebuke. And instead, he can insist in his heart, God is unfair. God has no right to reject my offering. God is wrong. In other words, he can, in in the imagery given here in this verse, he can open the door and lay out the red carpet to bitterness, resentment, and hatred, and anger. It's all too familiar, isn't it? The only difference, actually, from what happened in the previous chapter, chapter 3, is that the enemy is internal rather than external. It's not a temptation from Satan. This is an assault, an assault from his own heart. One author captures this in a punchy one-liner. Try and get this, okay? While Eve had been talked into her sin, Cain will not even let God talk him out of it. That's what's going on, isn't it? See how it's coming from inside? God describes the sin in Cain's heart as uh, as being like a wild beast. That's the picture we're given here. It's a beast that's got to be tamed. It's crouching at the door. The wolf outside the house. The same is true of us. This is what human beings are like. We can't blame a third party. You can't blame the devil for your sin. The power of sin. Sin is present in each one of us. And it's like a ferocious predator. It desires to possess us, to make us its own, to get us to do its bidding. But it's all part of us, do you see? We're just personifying it when we speak that way. And that way of speaking can make it sound like a separate entity, but the reality is that is our nature as human beings. This is the result of sin entering the world. That venom injected into the veins of our first parents, now being passed on through birth like it's genetic to us. Sacrifice. Second section. Second scene. Sin. See, what follows is the account of the first recorded sin committed after the fall of humanity. 
And it's kind of like a prototype, really, here. I'd suggest that it vividly il illustrates to us, and, and this is at least part of its function, um, just how devastating the entrance of sin into the world is. Look at verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Such a short account, isn't it? That's it. It's, it's come and gone. But it's shocking nonetheless, isn't it? They take a trip out to the fields, away from witnesses. And there Cain turns on his brother. I wonder what he did. Did he beat him with a rock? Did he put his hands around his neck and strangle him? Did he watch as a life drained from his brother's face? The light went out in his eyes. I can't imagine the anger needed to do such a thing. Can you? Or can we? How often do you hear those who, you know, you, you read the news reports and you read those who, who knew someone who's done something terrible like this. They say, oh, he's such a quiet guy. He's a really nice guy. Just like average bloke. Lived next door. Didn't see it coming. How often do we hear that? Do we hear about a stabbing where, you know, they didn't just stab the victim once. Now it's 20 stabs, 50 stabs. You're thinking, what? What on earth was going on? How can anyone do that? Rage. It's unchecked anger, isn't it? And it burns out of control. It truly is like a wild beast possessing and dehumanizing us, making us capable of horrors. This is the reality of sin. Surely, murder is actually the worst of all sins. It's the worst of all sins. Perhaps that's why this story is recorded right here at the beginning. So we can see just exactly what has been unleashed. Murder is an attempt to destroy the image of God. Murder is an attack against God himself in that way. The one who most resembles God, let me destroy it. All sin is the same, don't get me wrong, you know, all sin is the same in that its sentence is death, that's what it deserves. All sin deserves death, but murder is surely the most morally reprehensive thing we can do. It's why it always carries the harshest sentence, read through the Old Testament. Heaviest sentence for death. Singled out, actually, later on in the book of Genesis. For these very reasons. So we should then stand back in horror as we read this story. What kind of monster is Cain? But according to Jesus, every one of us is guilty of the same. Now, you may not like me saying that. Take a look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Got the pattern of the words? But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. It's drawing a direct parallel, do you see? Jesus cuts right to the chase here. He pulls back the veil, actually, 
and reveals to us that anger, murdering someone in our imagination, you ever done that? Jesus is saying here that even if we don't act on it, that anger reveals our heart to be the same as the heart of Cain. Don't miss that. We must be careful lest we judge him. Which brings us to the sentence, the third section here. And again, it's hauntingly familiar, the account. Have a look at verse 9. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Just like his old man before him, Cain thinks he can hide what he's done. Exactly the same story again, isn't it? It's just repeating again. This time, that's not a, a flimsy covering of leaves that we're going. Cain is more sophisticated here. He's made sure there's no witnesses. He's taken him out to the field, away from population. Uh, and he may have even perhaps buried the body, hidden the evidence. But how wrong is he? God saw it all, of course, just as he did the first time. God's question to Cain just simply gives Cain an opportunity to come clean, which he will not do. Am I my brother's keeper? It's hard to read that as anything but impertinent, isn't it? Why should I know where the golden boy is? Didn't know you expected me now to keep tabs on him as well. But not only did the all-seeing God see, God also hears. Listen, says God. The blood of Abel has soaked into the ground and is now crying out for justice. And God can hear it. God knows everything you see about your and my sin. Nothing escapes his notice. And he's a God of justice. Nothing gets forgotten about what we do. Our sin is always before God is recorded. The cries of those that we wound those that we treat unjustly, those that we hate, they join the chorus. And God must and God will pass sentence. Have a look at verse 11 with me. Now, now you are under a curse, says God to Cain, and you are driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Notice, this time, the curse actually falls on Cain. It's not, it's not on the environment. It's not on another creature this time. Cain is the first individual to be cursed by God. He is banished, even from the place of banishment. The ground will no longer even yield him crops, says God. I guess now he's got to become a hunter-gatherer. He has to scavenge to keep himself alive. He's got to scrape together whatever he can find. He's got to always be on the move as an outcast, even from his own kin. But Cain's chief concern, in verse 14, is that now, you know, his life is forfeit. 
He, he just wants to keep himself alive. He just wants to save his own skin. Because anyone he meets will want to kill and avenge the death of Abel. Remember, this is a, this is a pretty close family, isn't it, at this point? Everyone knows everyone. Surely Abel was, you know, just by his character, I mean, he was probably loved by everyone. He's everyone's big brother, wasn't he? Apart from Cain. And so God puts a mark on Cain. No one is sure what that means, puts a mark on Cain, but it is, it is to protect him. Gordon Wenham, the, uh, I'd like to call him the godfather of Genesis commentators, because like he wrote his book so long ago and everybody quotes it. He tells us that uh, the rabbis suggested that this mark actually refers to uh, a, a fearsome dog that accompanies Cain. It's an interesting image, isn't it? And scares everybody off who encounters him. I like the image. Cain, I mean, that's a great name for a Rottweiler, isn't it? A big, huge Rottweiler. Cain, yeah. He receives grace from God. And so we see Cain's heart truly revealed here, don't we? Look at this. It should be struck by this. There is no remorse There was no repentance. He's just gutted that he didn't get away with it. He's been found out. All he wants to do is save himself. It's a horror, isn't it? Well, what are we to take from this story? Let me give you five things as we close. They're they're, they're short things, don't worry. First, that all of us are sinners. I I hope that's been clear. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We must get that straight. The same corrupt heart, full of selfishness and bitterness and resentment and greed, resides in our chest just as it did in Cain's chest. We're all sinners. The sinful thoughts and actions that we commit, they are simply the overflow of what is already there. And we're condemned to a lifetime of of battling. Either we will follow those desires or we will fight to keep the wild beast that is crouching at the door from coming in the house. All of us are sinners. Secondly, that we all deserve to be judged. Sin ruins the good world that God has made. It fills our world with misery and pain. It ruins everything. And our sin never remains a private affair. Don't believe it. It hurts those around us. It poisons everything. And it offends God. How can God ignore our sin? How can he turn a deaf ear to those who've been wronged? That's not the God of the Bible. How can he allow rebels like us to trample over his laws to replace him? To replace him on the whole with ourselves. Say, no, I will decide what is right and wrong. I will rule. All of us have sinned. And the wages of that sin is death. But third of all, God is merciful towards sinners. Look at the mercy that God shows to Cain. Despite the fact he never shows any signs of contrition or repentance, God confronts him. 
God tells him the right way to go. He warns him about the sin in his heart. He gives him a chance to confess his sin. And he spares his life. He even sends protection because Cain pleads his case. He gives him, protects him. The grace of God. Every one of us, like Cain, receive, is, is a receiver of God's mercy. If it were not for his mercy, all of us would have been rightly consumed. That's what we deserve. But God is so patient. If you have never turned to him, bowed the knee, received him as your king, then do so now while there is still time. Every new day that you have is an extension of his mercy. He doesn't need to do it. One day will be the last day. It is good that God is merciful. Don't presume on his mercy. Fourthly, that God does not receive us because of anything that we do to earn it. It's clear in this story, isn't it? He receives all who come to him by faith, just like Abel did. It's not about what you bring. That's to miss the point, isn't it? It's not about how valuable or how much what you bring to God is. It's about how you come. There is no way to earn or merit or work your way to God. Will you come to God simply by faith like Abel did? Will you trust him? Will you surrender everything? doesn't matter what. And simply trust his generous love and grace and salvation that we as sinners so desperately need because of our heart. And fifthly, finally, there is still blood that cries out. The book of Hebrews in chapter 12 speaks to us of Jesus as being the mediator of a new covenant whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What an amazing, interesting image that is. See what he's saying? There is still blood that's spilt and is crying out. But it's not the blood of Abel. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. Francis Schaeffer, one of the great thinkers and philosophers of the 20th century, meditates on that verse in Hebrews and he says this. Abel's blood cries out, justice! Justice! If God shrugged his shoulders and walked away... There would be no moral absolute in the universe. But there is another way. One rooted in the blood of Jesus, shed in history. This blood speaks a better word than that of Abel. The blood of Jesus goes beyond justice and offers mercy. It cries salvation. Salvation on the basis of Jesus' death to all who will hear. So will you then hear the cry of Jesus' blood today? He spilled his blood on the cross for murderers like you and me. Come to him. Come to Jesus. 